BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, friends, and welcome to the second in our series of special podcasts with the authors of the New York Times bestseller, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, 27 Psychiatrists and mental health experts assess a president. You can join the series here, but if you like things in order, I suggest you go back and listen to the first episode where eight different psychologists and psychiatrists break down some of the crippling psychological problems that render Donald Trump mentally unfit to be president, and not only that, a danger to all of us. Now, most of you already think this about Donald Trump, so what's new? Well, what's new is these mental health experts sharing their professional judgments about Trump in a mainstream media outlet like the Bill Press Pod. Because up till now, with few exceptions, their expertise has been suppressed. This episode tells the story of that suppression of evidence, driven by the American Psychiatric Association, the professional organization for psychiatrists in America and also the story of a media complicit in that suppression, and shamefully so. We're joined today by Dr. Bandy Lee, a psychiatrist on the faculty of the Yale Medical School and the editor and force behind the book, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, and by Dr. Leonard Glass, associate professor of psychiatry at the Harvard Medical School. Dr. Lee and Dr. Glass, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for joining us. Good to talk to you. Good to be here. Good to be here as well. Uh, A couple of years ago, at a time when most public health professionals, certainly most mental health professionals, did not get involved in the political debate at all, mostly sat on the sidelines, either by choice or perhaps under pressure not to get involved. And yet some of you took a different path in 2017 under the leadership of Dr. Lee. 27 of you got together, published a book called The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump. 27 psychiatrists and mental health experts assess a president. And there was a second edition of that, of course, published uh, just last year. My question is, what did you see back then that concerned you and what compelled held you to basically break tradition and speak out. Dr. Lee, you want to start us off? I believe that it was a historic event for us because in the past, there really wasn't much reason to speak up about a public figure. And it's actually untrue that people hadn't spoken up. In fact, many were speaking in various ways about public figures, but there wasn't such urgency as when Donald Trump started to appear and became a presidential candidate and then subsequently was elected. That was when we witnessed a somewhat historic event in that more and more mental health professionals were speaking up And there was a consensus that was forming. So by the time that 
we held the ethics conference at Yale in April 2017. It was to discuss how we should speak about the president, whether or not we should come together in a collective voice and try to inform the public of what we saw were the, the president's rather severe psychological dangers and how to do so. And it came out as a consensus from the meeting that we indeed had an ethical obligation to warn and inform the public about what we saw. I think part of our concern was that he was very successful at presenting himself as something that he wasn't, and we could recognize the inherent danger in people sort of swallowing that presentation and investing him with power when he was someone with a long track record of impulsivity and poorly considered decisions and vengefulness and disregard of the truth. And those things were obvious to us as mental health professionals, and they seem to have escaped the notice of large segments of the population sufficient for him to get elected or just not be weighed as heavily as we felt they should be, given the inherent danger of having someone so uh, incapable of reflective thought and collaboration holding the instruments of great power. Looking back, do you wish you had spoken out earlier, maybe before the election rather than after? Many of us had in sporadic ways, but it only became more organized upon the urgency of the election. I myself had decided to change course from trying to speak more privately and go through the official channels of speaking to lawmakers, for example. After the election, when members of the public got in touch with me, I received a deluge of emails and phone calls the morning after election. So that's how I decided to become public about it. But certainly there might have been others who thought of doing so earlier. And Dr. Glass, I guess part of the reality is that most people didn't think there was any chance Donald Trump was going to get elected. Well, that was certainly an opinion that I shared and many others. We were talking amongst ourselves, but after his election, we were struck with the urgency of the predicament that we faced as a country. And the discussions among ourselves felt insufficient. So we, uh, a group of us wrote a letter that was published in the New York Times pointing out the unfitness of Donald Trump to hold this office, after which we got the predictable criticism and accusations from our own professional association, the American Psychiatric Association, whose Goldwater Rule in truth, had sort of inhibited us from going there because it was an ethical violation to speak out about someone who you hadn't examined and whose authorization you hadn't received. Do you believe that you were in violation of the Goldwater Rule by publishing this book? And uh, Dr. Gillespie, maybe before Dr. Lee jumps in, you could just explain to uh, all of our listeners who may not understand or remember what the Goldwater Rule was all about. Well, the Goldwater Rule arose after a kind of black eye was gotten by the psychiatric profession when people went after 
Barry Goldwater with an assortment of diagnoses, never having examined him and then having their opinions aggregated in Fact Magazine, who was sued successfully by Barry Goldwater. And the professional discipline of psychiatry didn't want that sort of thing to diminish the credibility of the profession. So it came out with what became colloquially known as the Goldwater Rule, which was a prohibition against giving diagnoses to people that you hadn't examined. And it was nicknamed as the no diagnosis from afar rule. And so we all lived with that and hadn't felt really pushed to go beyond that and took our uh, place among the other professions, watching things play out on the national scene until Donald Trump made his descent, the golden staircase, and came to occupy the seat of the greatest power in this country. And then our alarm bells went off and overcame our reluctance to place ourselves in possible ethical violation by speaking out about someone we hadn't examined. But Dr. Lee, doesn't the Goldwater Rule itself, even in its original form, make an exception for, I'm paraphrasing here, extreme public danger? Absolutely. All medical ethics, in fact, the ethical code itself, states that these are not rules, they are principles. And therefore, they have to be weighed against the greater goals of medicine, which is to save lives and to better health and well-being of patients and society. And people often forget that physicians have responsibility to patients as well as society, almost in equal terms. And I do not feel we broke the Goldwater Rule because the Goldwater Rule itself falls under the principle that we improve the community and better public health. The very purpose of its being placed in ethics is not so as to protect a public figure, which we have no responsibility toward, one who is not a patient in any case, but our responsibility is to society. And so we do not diagnose public figures, do not give out frivolous conclusions without having examined them and properly examined them in detail because it would hurt society in many uh, conceivable instances. But if not speaking about the public figure poses a harm to society, and we at the ethics conference gave extreme danger as our standard for speaking up so vocally. But in fact, the way the rules are written, any benefit to public health should allow for psychiatrists to speak up. We do uh, respect the rights of individuals to privacy. But uh, as Bandy pointed out, Donald Trump is not our patient. He is a public figure. And there is enormous evidence from his own mouth about his reactions to people. There's the testimony under oath of people who have worked with him. There is no shortage of evidence to allow one to draw a conclusion about fitness. Fitness is not the same thing as diagnosis. If Donald Trump was behaving in this sort of irresponsible way, and all he were doing was buying and selling apartments in New York City, 
we would have no need and no inclination to speak up about his mental fitness. But when we see him in a position of enormous power and discretion with all of the liabilities that such that he could never pass any employer's test for judgment and temperance and collaboration and respect for and ability to work with other people and saw him virtually unchecked. It was, as Dr. Lee points out, a compelling responsibility to not be inhibited by the constraints that appropriately apply to patients when this man was not a patient. He was a public figure with the capacity to do great harm. And in fact, Dr. Lee, one of the my takeaways from your book was that collectively, your concern, and several of you make this point in different ways, that your concern was not the mental health of Donald Trump, it was the public danger that he represented in the office of president. Yes, because Mr. Trump, if he were not in the office of the presidency, would not be such a great danger. In fact, dangerousness, just like fitness, and someone who is dangerous would be automatically unfit, has nothing to do with diagnosis. It has little to do with diagnosing a mental illness because very few mental illnesses are connected to dangerousness. And so it's a separate evaluation that's more about the situation, not so much about the person, but rather the weapons they have access to, the authority they have, and the influence they have. And therefore, it's an evaluation that could be made in real time, in fact, should be made based on real reactions to real situations. And so in this case, you don't need the intimate medical records or personal interview. In fact, a personal interview is often discouraged because the person can falsely report or lead you astray. Yes, that's, that's so important. We have tried as much as possible in all of our pieces to make it clear that we are not diagnosing, we are not focused on the issue of mental illness because some of our greatest leaders, like Abraham Lincoln or Winston Churchill, had mental illnesses, and they were the greatest leaders that we can point to. So our concern is about fitness, his capacity to do the job in a safe, considered, and responsible fashion. And that is something that seems often to be lost when we are tarred with the broad brush of, oh, you're diagnosing somebody that you've never met. No, we aren't diagnosing him. We're commenting on his mental fitness to carry out the responsibilities of his office. Given that, did you make any effort to go to the American Psychiatric Association and say, now let's update this Goldwater rule, or let's fit it to our times, or maybe amend it uh, in any way? Well, we did, after the publication of the book and the broad condemnation of it by the psychiatric establishment, we formed a committee of the authors and we came up with what were thoughtful and considered revisions that could be applied to the Goldwater Rule that would save the important protective elements and also provide room for members to express their conscience and respond to the needs of the public. We worked on it for months. 
and we had two of our most senior leaders, uh, Robert J. Lifton and Judy Herman, who were uh, distinguished life fellows of the American Psychiatric Association, present our recommendations to them so we could enter into a negotiation and update it, as you suggested. And they have never responded to us. Never responded, Dr. Lee? I mean, this is a pretty important group of people coming to them with their best ideas. Not only that, this committee, which Len headed, was hardworking and came up with a very thoughtful revision that preserved the essence of the Goldwater Rule, the parts that we could all agree on, but also allowed for exceptions, just like any other rule. And uh, there should not have been a more reasonable attempt at reconciliation. But apart from Len's activities, I also wrote a letter along with Robert J. Lipton and Judith Herman to the APA, and that they did respond to. We were asking for a discussion, just a, a discussion to review some of the ideas, whether some need re reconsideration. And they wrote back stating that the discussion was over, that they had already done a discussion. <laughs> but this was under the conditions of numerous protest letters being sent to the Ethics Committee, members demanding a vote that the membership was never consulted. And there was an American College of Psychiatrists meeting where it was revealed that an overwhelming majority of psychiatrists disagreed with the Goldwater Rule in its current state. And also there was, in fact, another foremost Goldwater Rule scholar who offered to a new president-elect of the APA, offering to chair a commission to re-examine the Goldwater Rule. And the president-elect was very excited. But once she was put in place in her presidency of the APA, she was somehow barred from ever responding back to him. Did the APA uh, take any official position on your book? They have responded to it in considerable ways, in my view, through public campaigns. Three days of the publication of the book, they said we had no duty to warn the public and took a very, very narrow interpretation of the Tarasov doctrine, which is when a patient has expressed a specific desire to harm someone uh, as the only time when we have a duty to warn, when we have a duty to warn and protect all our responsibility, our patients and society in general. Six days after I came out to the public stating that I spoke with Congress members, they came out with scathing terms, obviously directed at me, stating that armchair psychiatry is not condoned, even if one is not a member of the APA, because I resigned over a decade ago over their pharmaceutical industry ties. And they called me self-aggrandizing and using psychiatry as a political tool. Now, they were actually breaking their own Goldwater rule because at that point I was publicly known. And how could they even know my motivations without interviewing me and getting consent to speak about me? So I think what's important is, is the timing of things and the direction of things, that the APA actually changed the Goldwater rule, which I considered to be reasonable before Donald Trump's presidency. But 
almost two months into the uh, the administration, they changed the Goldwater rule from not diagnosing a public figure without examination and consent to not commenting on any objective aspect of them at all under any circumstance, even in a national emergency. And that was the alarming change that, in fact, motivated me to do the conference in the first place. So they even made it worse, if, as was my understanding. Yes. Well, they made it more stringent so that it, not only were you not to diagnose someone, which we hadn't done, but you weren't allowed to make any comment at all about a public figure and identify yourself as a psychiatrist. So that was effectively a gag rule. That meant that the American Psychiatric Association didn't have any confidence that its members could be trusted to speak with the public the way a cardiologist or an orthopedist or, or any kind of other physician could speak with the public about a situation that they didn't understand technically, and not bring disgrace on the profession and damage its credibility. And that was essentially a way of silencing all of us who had expressed alarm at the danger of Donald Trump being president. Dr. Glass, Dr. Lee said she resigned from the APA. Are you still a member? No, I actually had been a member. I had been one of these Distinguished Life Fellows myself. And when this gag rule came out, I wrote to the president of the American Psychiatric Association, who then directed me to negotiate with the ethics committee, which I did. And when the ethics committee wouldn't budge, wouldn't give us any room to speak out as members of our profession, I surrendered my membership after over 40 years and my uh, distinguished life fellowship because it didn't seem possible to be a member of an organization who would consider me in ethical violation for acting out of conscience. And I'm somebody who has taught ethics, I've chaired ethics committee, I've published in professional journals about ethics, and to be told that if I spoke out of conscience, I would be in ethical violation was just abhorrent and intolerable to me. Now, so the APA is not happy with the book, not happy with your speaking out, but you still were able to speak out to members of the media or not, Dr. Lee? There's really no discipline that they could impose on me privately, so they resorted to public campaigns. The reason why the Goldwater Rule is not a rule in almost any other mental health association other than the APA and the state licensing boards are prohibited from adopting the rule because it conflicts with the First Amendment. So there should have been no real inhibition to my speaking up, but there's indication that they have gone directly to the media. For example, the New York Times wrote an editorial, its editorial board put out a statement that echoes the APA's views exactly, stating that psychiatrists have nothing to add without a personal examination and therefore should not speak in public and essentially beyond the purview of psychiatry. So I was quite shocked that a newspaper would determine the boundaries of an expert field, but they published alongside the editorial board's article a full op-ed by a 
past president of the APA, Dr. Jeffrey Lieberman, who stated that the president is just a jerk and therefore nothing to be worried about. Uh, <laughs> and <laughs> But since that editorial, my invitations to the media, which were ongoing, it had gradually built up. And at that point in January 2018, it was a number one topic of national conversation. And I was mm -hmm. interviewed I 15 hours a day. And after that editorial, within two or three weeks, all my inquiries just dried up completely, permanently. With the publication of the second edition last year, we invited 13 different experts of all different fields from around the country, law, political science, journalism, uh, history, climate science, and nuclear science. They all gathered in one place, the National Press Club. We tried contacting the media about 50 different stations and programs, and half of them responded stating they could not cover the event because of the Goldwater Rule. Now, <laughs> that is that was astonishing to us because the Goldwater Rule is a guild rule that essentially only applies to members and is not even mm -hmm. a rule, as the ethics code says, possibly conflicts with other greater ethical guidelines. And yet this was a conference with mostly non-mental non health professionals, let alone psychiatrists. And they were stating the Goldwater Rule was the reason they could not cover it. That's when I realized that the APA's public campaign worked. And around the conference, I was still invited by about nine different programs to come on the evening before and the day of, and all of them were canceled. A reporter who was there said that that was very unusual and that there must be a memo. One of my experiences that confirms this is the fact that I've been invited by about 50 different programs, uh, cable and network TV. All of them have been canceled 100%, usually right before I'm a supposed to appear. So producers were still finding this to be important, but we were somehow not allowed to go on. And collectively, we have uh, some of the most renowned psychiatrists included. About a hundred op-eds have been submitted to the New York Times, the Washington Post, and other avenues. Not one has been published. And I've also been interviewed by about a half dozen New York Times reporters, just to have only my quotes removed by the editor, whereas all the other quotes would remain. One article had my quote as the centerpiece, and yet it was removed. So we know that there has been something systematic going on. It's not been entirely effective to uh, suppress our voice. The Boston Globe has carried a number of pieces that we've written, mm -hmm. and they've been uh, picked up by national public radio and television locally. So as effective and destructive as the campaign to tar us with the brush of being, and this is the most extreme uh, accusation, that we are like Nazi and Soviet-era psychiatrists who conspired with an oppressive state to torment its citizens. They've actually said that, correct? Yes. Yes, they have. And it's outrageous and it's perverse because we are not allied with the state. We are trying to protest and 
raise a voice in opposition and alarm to what we see going on. And we have been effectively tarred with the brush of being heinous perverters of our scientific credentials. And it's a bitter irony to be speaking out of conscience and then be caricatured in such a gross and incorrect fashion. At the worst, it seems to me, by speaking out, you might um, piss off Donald Trump, <laughs> to be blunt. What's the APA afraid of? Why this heavy hand of censorship, if I can use the word? The chief executive officer of the APA confessed at a private meeting that they changed the Goldwater Rule, made it more stringent in order to protect federal funding. We know that this is an administration that tries to control scientific information, tries to keep it from getting out and to censor it through funding. The past APA president I mentioned, Dr. Lieberman, has had his funding enormously increased, federal funding for education and research. Now, while this administration has been cutting education and research all across the board, they have seen multi-million dollar increases. And uh, this has been investigated and reported in an article called Muzzled by Psychiatry in a Time of Crisis. So follow the money, Dr. Glass, is that it, do you think? Well, not being part of the inner workings of the APA, in fact, having surrendered my membership, it's hard for me to speak with confidence about what their motivation is. There is a new book that just came out uh, that details the history of the Goldwater Rule. And in it, the uh, researcher, who was pretty uh, objective and unbiased, points to what Dr. Lee is describing, which is a financial interest. That is, the, the government sets reimbursement rates for psychiatric services. And if you piss off Donald Trump, he has no hesitation to seek revenge, whether it's in the country's best interest or not. Having a seat at the table, I think, is an important consideration. And I think the profession was traumatized by its earlier experience where psychiatrists sort of shot their mouths off in an irresponsible way. That gave birth to the Goldwater Rule, which then became an instrument, as Dr. Lee has described, for muzzling and controlling the membership, implicitly stating that the members can't be trusted hmm. to act professionally and offer their opinions in a thoughtful and disciplined fashion. And yet psychiatrist members who actually broke the Goldwater Rule uh, diagnosed the president unlike we, but diagnosed him in a way that made him seem less severely compromised, <laughs> uh, diagnosed him with incipient dementia, which Dr. Lieberman did while ruling everything else out, or Dr. Alan Francis, who stated that the president does not have narcissistic personality disorder, which is also a diagnosis. They have not been sanctioned by the APA. Let's take time out now for a quick break. We're discussing why and how mental health experts have been muzzled by their own professional association and many media outlets. We'll be back with Dr. Bandy Lee and Dr. Leonard Glass in just a moment. Today's podcast with Dr. Lee and Dr. Glass brought to you by the members of the United Food and Commercial Workers Union under President Mark Perrone. 
They're the people that take care of us in our great retail shops, grocery stores, distilleries, and meatpacking and processing plants all across the country, all of them on the front lines in this coronavirus pandemic, continuing to serve us, for which we're very grateful. We also thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Check out their website at ufcw.org. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. With Dr. Bandy Lee of the uh, Medical School and editor of The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, and with Dr. Leonard Glass of the Harvard Medical School and one of the authors of The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump. Before we move on, you mentioned participating in this letter to the New York Times and also the New York Times editorial, Dr. Lee mentioned. So I went back to read that New York Times editorial, and I was surprised. They basically accused you of what they called armchair psychiatry. And then there was this interesting sentence, I think is how their editorial ended. And it said, quote, you don't need to put Mr. Trump on a couch to discover who he is. Now, they were making that as an argument against you, but I read that as really making your point which is you don't have to examine Donald Trump in person to know that he may have some mental instability. Exactly. It's, it's ironic. It's full of contradictions. And we're speaking about areas where an examination is not freely necessary. But, but they're saying that they do not need expert opinion because Everyone can see what is going on, but at the same time, they are saying that experts cannot speak right. about this right. without authorization. I forgot to mention that I thought the APA was concerned about federal reimbursements, but the APA is directly funded by the federal government, which is what something I found out from one of the officers within the APA. They would not divulge the source or type of funding, but it is funded by the federal government, which was very surprising to me because I thought it was an independent organization. It's certainly true that you can recognize that there's something very odd about this man. He's very insecure. 
He's got a very inflated ego. He knows more than everyone in specialty fields in which he has no training or experience. And everyone who expects to survive in his service has to sort of agree with that. Well, here we are, a voice of dissent. And it might be the opinion of the Times editorial board that you don't need a bunch of professionally trained mental health experts to point out these character flaws and the way they can lead to impulsive and destructive action. But I would have to say that the record since his election makes it very clear that many people underestimated or simply failed to acknowledge or recognize how ill-suiting his style is to democratic governance. And how deeply enduring these traits are. Most people believe that he was settling in and was going to pivot to be more presidential when we were holding our first conference. Someone made the analogy to a house burning, that it makes no sense to simply say, you know, you don't have to be a fireman to to know that your house is burning, but you still have to call the firemen to put out the fire. (laughs) Very, very good. So I want to come up to today, triggering back to, again, this March 2017 letter that a few of you wrote to the New York Times. And in that letter about Donald Trump, you warned about the dangerous psychological patterns that you had observed. And two of them were noted. One, creation of his own reality. And two, inability to manage the inevitable crises that a president must deal with. What do we learn about Donald Trump's mental capacity from his dealing with the crisis that we're all in the middle of right now, the coronavirus crisis, the worst public health crisis in our lifetime? Well, he certainly has created his own belief system about the degree of danger that the coronavirus represented, and that resulted in catastrophic delay in responding it. He had a much happier and fantasied explanation for what the course of it would be in defiance of science and the experience of what was going on in China. So I think we've seen that in the face of a crisis, he doesn't know when his house is on fire and he tells people it's just a cookout. Dr. Lee? The crisis has really brought out exactly what we had been predicting. We were stating that he would grow more dangerous with time, uh, that he was more dangerous than the, the general public were suspecting, and that he would grow more dangerous with time, and that ultimately he would become uncontainable if we did not intervene. And he's now extremely dangerous, now more than ever, because he's under more pressure. And we're essentially seeing all our warnings play out. It's the notion of not being able to hear divergent points of view, to be intolerant of contradiction, to not be able to collaborate with people who have expertise, such as the scientists who have been advising him. Just that inability to calmly gather as much expertise, acknowledging one's own limitations, uh, acknowledging even the mistakes one has made, and being able 
to move forward together in a unifying way, as opposed to insisting that everything you've said is right and that everyone has to believe your fantastic and totally implausible assertions about hydroxychloroquine or using light or people don't have to wear masks. Well, they can if they want to, but I'm not going to. These are so irresponsible and contrary to consensual reality, the kind of reality we turn to experts because they've spent their lives developing that expertise. And we don't need to presume and invite everyone else to presume that we know everything. We know more about the about drones, about the internet, about renewable energy, about ISIS, about the economy. These are all absurd assertions that he makes with a straight face that, that lead to questions like the one you raised, Bill. Is he getting high on his own supply? Does he believe the total fabrications that he makes up and that he contradicts the next day? I mean, it's a very relevant question. But as I said, it's not one that I think someone who isn't privy to his internal processes is able to answer confidently. I might add that we actually did a mental capacity evaluation when the Mueller report came out because it was actually perfect material in abundant quantity and high quality in terms of direct report from coworkers and close associates who interact with him at work, giving their reports on under sworn testimony. And so we were able to do a capacity evaluation, which includes the ability to take in information, to process that information, and to make sound reality-based decisions considering consequences in advance and not being drawn into conspiracy theories. Basically, it's a test of rational decision-making. Len was on the panel and a few other renowned psychiatrists and psychologists, and essentially, he failed every criterion. And we are observing in front of our eyes how he is failing each of those criteria in real life in dealing with this deadly crisis. Because those are uh, critical capacities for assembling data mm-hmm. and drawing rational conclusions and then acting in an effective way that everyone can understand because the data is real. They're not derived from wishful thinking and an inability to tolerate unpleasant realities. Almost whatever objective, nonpartisan, nonpolitical criteria you could evaluate Donald Trump, his lack of fitness is inescapable. I want to ask you then, Dr. Lee, out of the Mueller report with your committee, exactly what were you looking at in Donald Trump? What were the assessments that you reached, the factors that you considered? We were looking at his pattern of interaction with his close associates and co-workers, whether he was able to take in important information and advice. In other words, that would be the equivalent of information about reality, intelligence, and the reports that he would get as a president, and whether he's able to internalize it and to be able to manipulate it in ways that would allow him to make use that information and decision-making. 
And he was essentially not able to do that. Now, mental capacity is not a, not a full fitness test, but it's a basic test that is necessary for just about any kind of fitness. So in effect, not only is he unfit to be in the office of the presidency, he would be unfit for almost any job that requires decision making because he's lacking the very basic building blocks of mental capacity. People have said that if he worked as a manager of a floor in a department store, his uh, behavior wouldn't be consistent with continued employment, much less as leader of the most powerful country on the planet. And in terms of creating his own reality, in the Mueller report, he could not even accept the reality of Russians' interference in the election, correct? And now he's attempting to persuade all of us of a different reality, which is that it was Ukraine that was behind all of this, not Russia in the first place. That's right. Just as he is trying to reformulate the reality of the coronavirus pandemic, he is trying to restructure what we are to believe rather than to confront what is. Dr. Glass? So the capacity to weigh and sort and consult and get divergent opinions and then synthesize a rational path forward, it's too much work. He doesn't seem to have the patience or the capacity to deal with the challenge of weighing and assessing and then picking, however uncomfortable personally, however poorly it reflects on one's past choices, picking a reasonable, collaborative, and prudent way forward. In closing, from what you've seen, what you've observed, what you've written, how would you describe the state of Donald Trump's mental health today? I'd like to not use the term mental health, okay, because I think please. that gets yeah. us into misleading territory. I think what you're seeing is a man who's increasingly desperate, who's flailing, who's grabbing at implausible and outrageous ways to somehow justify himself and distract the external observers so that they don't see him for what he is. And this is, of course, something that we have worried about since before his election, the use of external events such as wars or false enemies to try to divert public attention from a man who is fearful that he will be humiliated and rejected by the public that he has felt he has in the palm of his hand. And Dr. Lee, when you look at Donald Trump, what do you see? He is greatly worsening under pressure. And as the reality that he has had difficulty tolerating is pressing in on him because of the realities of the pandemic, he's going to grow vastly worse and in fact is in front of our eyes. And I would say that the next few months will be the most dangerous of his presidency. And many are just counting the days till the election, but I'm not sure that we could even last until the election. And 
keeping in mind that he still has full presidential powers of the ability to wage wars or launch nuclear attacks, in fact, has been heading directly in that direction, including many of his recent decisions. So we find this to be an immediate emergency. The organization that formed by the thousands of mental health professionals who got in touch with us since our April 2017 conference formed an organization of our own, the World Mental Health Coalition, and we put out a prescription for survival. It can be found on the website prescriptionforsurvival.org, where we put out several possible avenues for removing the dangers, essentially removal of the president, or if that's not possible, removing his influence. We feel that this is urgent uh, and emergent, and we do not suggest how it is done, but we state that it must be done. With that sober warning, Dr. Bandy Lee, Dr. Leonard Glass, thank you so much for your good work, and thank you for spending so much time with us today. Thank you very much. Happy to do it. And that's it for this edition of the Bill Press Pod. Next week in our series with the authors of The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, our team of mental health experts expose more of the dangers we face as a nation with a man so mentally unfit to be president, president of anything. One favor, if you're enjoying this series and the Bill Press Pod, please take time out to leave us a five-star review. It really helps us get the word out. And please subscribe and share the podcast with your friends. Meanwhile, stay safe, stay strong, and we'll see you on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.